Turn your Bibles to the book of Jude this morning. Thank you, Paul, for reading that passage for us. We're going to be looking primarily this morning at verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11, and you've, we've read it in the English Standard Version this morning. I want to read it out of the King James as well. This helps us a little bit with our understanding of this passage. Listen as I read. Likewise also... These dreamers, or these filthy dreamers, defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring him against a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, for what they know naturally as brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. And specifically, what we're looking at there in the KJV is this word at the beginning, likewise, which helps us understand where in these three verses fit in what we've studied this far. You may have in your Bible there the, the heading, Judgment on False Teachers. Judgment on False Teachers. But I think we're going to see this morning that though this does apply to false teachers, there's really an avenue, there's really an aspect of what Jude is telling us here that is for us today within the church. For us today within the church, and we will see that here in just a minute. Let us review a little bit. If you're looking at your Bibles, you'll note that we said that the, the central theme of this passage, the simple, central theme of this book was found in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. There's the theme of the book, contend for the faith. And then in verse 4, we see this, the certain people have crept in, they've slipped in, they've, they've, they've gone on a secret mission to infiltrate they crept into the church who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And we noted that meaning that the, their, um, their punishment has been well foretold. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only, only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then last week, Paul took us through verse f- 5 through verse 7. Now, I, wanna, I want you to look at 5 and 7 because there's a point at 8 through 11 and then uh, 8 through 10, and then there's something in verse 11 that I want you to note. Look at this, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Okay, there's example number one. People in the land of Egypt. You get another example. Look at verse 6, the angels. Then you get a third example. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. There's three examples here of judgment. Three examples of judgment. Well, how does that apply to our verses today? Look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, note three things. Defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. Three things. Verse 11, which we'll study next week. Woe to them, three things, for they walked in the way of Cain, number one. Two, abandoned themselves for the sake of grain to Balaam's error. And three, perished in Korah's rebellion. So the first three things in five through seven are examples of judgment. And then today we'll look at three examples of three characteristics of apostasy. And the next week you'll see three examples of apostasy. What is apostasy? 
Apostasy means a defiance of an established system or authority, a rebellion, an abandonment or breach of faith. This, I think, is really the core of what Jude is writing to. Because we can say, well, he's not talking about those who've who've left the faith, which are apostate, and gone out of the church. He's speaking to a specific group of people that have abandoned the, way, the faith or they perverted it and yet they're still within the church. And that could be a person that's standing in this pulpit. But I think Jude is mainly driving at this is the people that are sitting in the pews. Because he says, you or we contend for the faith so you may not be like this. These three things. And we would note that the, this group of threes, three group of threes, really just points to the fact that Jude, though a short book, is, is really deep. And he's very well thought out. And he's gone to great lengths to help us better understand what this apostasy looks like. A.W. Tozer wrote, So skilled is error at imitating truth that the two are constantly being mistaken for each other. It takes a sharp eye these days to know which brother is Cain and which is Abel. When I was growing up, we, my brother and I played a lot of sports, and one of the first sports that we really enjoyed playing was basketball. We still enjoy playing basketball, but at that time, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, we collected trading cards, basketball trading cards, and it was just a, a short-term thing. We didn't do it for long. We didn't have the money to do it for long. But we collected these trading cards. And, you, and the way you do it is you go to the store and you buy yourself a pack for a couple dollars of trading card. You don't know what's in there and you flip through them and you find the players that you, you like or the cards that may be valuable. And then you trade them with other kids that have cards that you want. And typically when you buy a pack of cards, you have some players that you know about and other players that you don't know anything about. And so if you look at the front of the card, it might have a picture of a guy shooting the basketball and have his name. And you're thinking, well, I've never heard of him. I don't know anything about him. It's just a guy looking like he's got a good jump shot. So how do you find out more about him? Well, you flip the card over and on the back side of the card is the stats, his percentages of how well he shoots a free throw or how well he shoots the three-pointer or his, how well he rebounds or how well he blocks shots or how well he steals, how long he's been in the league, how tall he is, how, how big he is, what school did he go through. So if you look at the back side, if you look at the front side of the card, you don't know anything about the guy, but if you look at the back side of the card, though you've never met the person and though you've never heard of him and though you've never seen him play, if you were to turn on the television or the game and see him come onto the court, you would be able to know if you knew basketball well enough to go, he's probably not going to drive the basket because he's a better three-point shooter. So I know he's probably going to hang out the three-point line. Never seen him play in your life. But you know a lot about him. You know the characteristics of the player because you've seen the characteristics. And so you can actually predict on the court what he's going to do. Well, Jude, by God's grace, is, is doing that for us this morning. You go, well, what are these what are, these, what are these false teachers or what are these apostate people? There's the front of the card, but tell me more about them. Well, Jude does that this morning. He gives us three characteristics that we can, we can see them on, on, in paper, but then been able to be able to, be re, able to recognize them in real life. And it's, it's a real grace of the Lord. So let's look at these things. Yet in like manner, verse 8, or 
the, uh, the King James would say likewise. So these people that were talking about this morning, these people that are apostate, these people that are, have wandered from the faith, that are still sitting in, within the church, they are relying on their own dreams, which we'll come to in a minute. They defile the flesh, point number one. Point number two, they reject authority. And point number three, they blaspheme the glorious ones. John MacArthur has, has summarized those, if you're taking notes and using the word I, they're immoral, they're insubordinate, and they're irreverent. They're immoral, they're insubordinate, they're irreverent. But what I want you to note before, before I show you how these three are tied back to the previous verses is look at their first character, really their first attribute. They rely on their dreams. They rely on their dreams. This is one of only a few times in scripture that this Greek word for dreams is used. And it's not, used, it's not thinking of the, uh, of the dream like Jacob had. This, is, this is, has the connotation of their own thoughts. The, the, the apostate person or the false teacher will come and say, you know, I had a dream the other night. I had a thought. God told me to do and it's very hard to argue with that. But notice their authority. Their authority is not on the word of God. Their authority is on their own level of thinking, their own ideas, their own views of what they think is right and wrong. They've got away from the sufficiency of Scripture. They've got away from the authority of Scripture. They don't go to this first. They go to what feels right to me. So we should always know that if we're talking to someone or if we hear someone from this pulpit or any other pulpit say something and you go, that sounds interesting. And you ask them, where do you find that in the word of God? Well, you know, I was just, I was thinking about this and it just kind of came to me. It must all go through the word of God. That's where they fall, that's where we fall away first is by getting away from the word of God as central, as authoritative, but then they've got these three characteristics. Defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. That word likewise at the beginning of verse 8 points to the fact that the three judgments given, those people in those three judgments had these three characteristics. And so I want to show you that. Let's go to Genesis 19. Turn in your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 19. And just for the sake of time this morning, we're going to look at the third characteristics here, this this example of judgment found over Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19. Being in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So these are, these are angels sent by God and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he, he rose to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now, first characteristic, immoral, defile the flesh. You find it here. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Homosexuality. 
Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge, meaning Lot. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. This is a vivid picture, really, of the debauchery of sin, just the, the depravity of our hearts. And and you can see, they, they wanted to defile the flesh. They were immoral. But they, they didn't simply stop there. They, they went to the second point, rejected authority. They rejected God's design for human life, his authority and how things should be. And then they blasphemed the glorious ones. And we'll get into that a little bit today and understanding what this means. But these, the, that which is good, that which is right, and specifically here meaning angels, they turned against them. So these, these three things, these three examples of apostasy, uh, excuse me, these three characteristics, next week's examples, these three characteristics of apostasy are really seen in these three judgments that we, we learned about last week in five through seven. Let's look a, a little more deeply, quickly here, into this defile the flesh. It's talking about immorality. And we're, we're commanded in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 7.1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In 1 Peter 2, verse 11, dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Well, if you, if you turn away from Scripture then you turn to your own desires. And when you turn to your own desires, it's just a short time until those desires are sensual in nature. And they desire to defile the flesh. And there have been many, many, many people in churches and pastors and preachers in the pulpit who over the years who have turned away from God still within the church. And one of the first marks is their immorality. We cannot handle these things lightly. We must turn from them ourselves. But then you see the second point, they're insubordinate or they reject authority. Romans 13, 1, we're commanded, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be or ordained of God. God has set us in Society and he has, and in that society, he has ordained structures of authority. But notice the, the first thing that they reject reject authority. Which authority is Jude talking about? It's back up in number four, verse number four. Look with me. Who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny, and here's the rejection of authority, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny Christ as Lord in their life. 
that deny Christ as Lord in their life. We, we cannot do that. If Christ has saved us, he must be Lord over us. We must submit to his rule and reign in our lives. So they're immoral, they're insubordinate, they, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're irreverent, verses 9 and 10. This is really, this is really a, a, a difficult passage to understand, the end of verse 8 and 9 and 10, because this is the only place in Scripture that you see this. So we have very little to, to uh, cross to use to cross-examine to better understand what, what Jude is telling us here. But we do have one place, and I want you to see that. Let's go over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. So we noted in previous weeks, 2 Peter is written closely with Jude, and some verses even almost word for word. 2 Peter 2, 10 through 13 and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There's the first two. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Second Peter, Peter warning us again that this apostasy is within the church, but it doesn't give us much help in terms of what does this blaspheme the glorious ones mean? If we go a little bit more into verse 9, I think, we get, I think we get a picture. We're talking about the archangel Michael. We don't see Michael too many places, but we know enough from Scripture. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. Satan was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So Michael, being this, the highest angel to some respect, fighting and waging war against Satan. But throughout Scripture, we have these glorious ones, and the Greek is doxa, meaning to, to basically to worship our doxology. We're worshiping the Lord. These glorious ones, these angels of light that worship the Lord. Where do, one of the first places we see that is in, is in Deuteronomy 33, and I want you to see that. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Moses reminding the people of what God has done for them. Verse 1, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, 
The Lord came down from Sinai. Remember what happened on Sinai. That's where God gave the Ten Commandments, the law. The Lord came down from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. This, this thought that the, the glorious ones, the angels of light that we know are in heaven because in Revelations they're around the throne, ten thousands upon ten thousands, myriads singing his praises as we will do ourselves one day around that throne. They're singing the throne. They were, they were there when the law was given. Therefore, meaning Judah's saying the, these glorious ones, those that stand for truth, those that stand for that which is ultimately true, that which is from God. To help us better understand that then, Jude does something. He says, the, the, those that are apostate blaspheme the glorious ones. And then he gives us a word picture, this, this Michael and the archangel over the body of Moses to show us really what this means. Now last week, uh, as you, some of y'all submit cards for us to pray, I had a great question submitted. What did the devil want with the body of Moses? And Brian Burphy gave this to me and says, I don't know the answer. And I looked at it and said, I don't know the answer. So we went to scripture this week and we found out the answer. What did the devil want with the body of Moses? Look at that, verse nine. It's William Pradia. Good question, William. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputed about the, disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. What was happening here? Deuteronomy 34, we have the death of Moses. And you know, remember, he, he went up on a mountain, he died, and nobody knows where he's buried. Well, from this passage, we know something was going on. We don't know what was going on. We don't know why Satan uh, wanted the body of Moses. We know that Michael the archangel won out and he buried him somewhere. I think we could make some presumptions. Maybe Satan wanted the body to be able to uh, maybe resurrect it. Maybe there's a spot where they, the, the children of Israel could go and say, well, that's where Moses was buried. And, and in that way, Satan bringing about further idolatry over Moses' shrine, we're not sure. But notice in whatever was happening between Michael the archangel and the devil, Michael the archangel doesn't say, get behind me or cut this out. Because he, he knows, he realizes he has no power but that which is from God. See this? Verse 9, 10. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We know in Matthew 4, Jesus rebukes Satan. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Well, how, how does this apply to those that are apostate? Those that are apostate will often say, you'll, you'll hear whether it's the prosperity gospel, these other type of things where they'll say, they, they will be the ones who somehow think they can engage Satan. Say, Satan, I command you to, to stop. I command you to leave this person. They have no authority to do so. And even, even Michael the archangel, the highest angel, does not say these things. He places his pronouncement in the word of God, underneath the authority of God. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, not me. We've got to be very careful. We've got to be very careful that we are always about uh, promoting and, and speaking the truth 
as the angels, the angels of light promote and speak the truth of God's word, the law of God, that we would do the same. We would not blaspheme that. The devil does. We, we should not be like him. And then we should never engage in that ourselves. We should always be about behind the authority and power of God. We alone have none, but God has it all. Verse 10, then you see that the ultimate destruction that they have is, is they're in. They will be destroyed. Verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They blaspheme what they do not understand. They're, they're like a, a hungry animal who instinctively must go for the food in the trap. They have no other, no other route to go. Sin blinds them. Matthew Henry noted in this passage that those who have had their eyes opened by God to see the wondrous mystery of what Christ has done for us cannot look away. It is too beautiful. Sin blinds. And their ultimate destruction, their ultimate end is their destruction as noted in 5 through 7. So we have three, we have three characteristics really four if you add in relying on their dreams they defile the flesh they're immoral they reject authority they're insubordinate they blaspheme the glorious ones they're irreverent but what's the big deal what does this book have to do with us and this church what's the big deal with the false teachers what's the big deal with apostate and in some respect it would almost seem like look let them do their thing and I'm going to do my thing. I'll follow the Lord. If they want to dive off the deep end, let them do it. What does it have to do with me? Why should I care? And I'm going to tell you two reasons. One, because the central duty of Christians, as we saw in, in first light there, is to make disciples. That God's name, that God's that God's authority, that God would reign over the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. We should be about the business of making disciples. Therefore, we must identify those that we can make disciples of. And two, the true beauty of the saving work of Christ should be the truth we desire the world to see. Or let me put it another way. Those who claim Christ and yet speak a false doctrine is not the message we want to give to the world of Christ. Because Christ has saved us from our sin. He's not, as we saw in verse 3, not provided the grace to allow us to wallow in our sin. That's a false picture of the gospel. The gospel in its beauty is what we're commanded in verse 3 to contend for. To contend for the gospel. And to have a false gospel or to have a person who claims Christ and yet lives in, in apostasy is to cloud the beauty of the gospel to the world that desperately needs it. To have a gospel that allows sin is to minimize dramatically the work of Christ as our Savior from sin. So Jude pushes us as believers to contend for a true gospel in, our, in, in this church Specifically, or categorically in our homes, in our businesses, in our minds, in our hearts. In order that the gospel in its clear, would, be, would be communicated in its clearest form. In its, in its most abundant beauty. 
that the world would be able to, to see the Savior in his beauty that they so desperately need. You're probably familiar with the hymn, Beautiful Savior, Lord of the Nations. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the Nations. Son of God and Son of Man. Glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. So we contend we contend for the beauty of the gospel, which is why we need to be able to identify those who are portraying a false gospel and to realize that we ourselves were once there as well. Titus 3, 3 through 6, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not not because of works done by us in righteousness, but by according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he tells us, Jude's telling us, listen, if you get off in wrong thinking with these, these dreams, with the defiling of the flesh or rejecting authority, blaspheming the glorious one, if you get off in wrong thinking in these areas, this leads to false doctrine. And false doctrine leads to sin. Ideas have consequences. Thoughts have consequences. And the world needs to know the God of this Bible. You know, before, you, before the world knows of the God uh, that, it, that is all-powerful, before the world knows that he's a God of peace, before the world knows that he's omniscient or that he's omnipotent, before the world knows that he does not change and he's patient with us. You know what the world needs to know more than anything else? This is the God who saves. Who saves from sin and eternal destruction. That's what they desperately need to know. And so if we have have this false doctrine that leads to apostasy, what the world sees is a person who claims Christ but is not living in a way that has been, he's been saved from. He's saved us from sin. So when we walk out our lives in a way that is glorifying to God and fighting against sin, the world sees that beautiful Savior who saved them and can save them from their sin if they will but repent and come to him. This is why it's so critical that Jude's giving us these examples of what to look for. And giving us these examples of this judgment that's to come. Giving us these characteristics and commanding us, imploring us, contend. Contend for the true faith. Fight it in your own personal lives. Fight it in your pews. Fight it in your church. Fight it in your business. Because if you don't fight it, the world gets a a wrong picture. And they desperately need to see the clearest picture possible. A beautiful Savior who's died on the cross and given them the opportunity of life, life everlasting. So we must, we, must, we must contend that our lives, our actions, our thoughts, our words, our attitudes would reflect the, fa- the fact that we're under the power of his saving grace. We're by his grace living out a life, though not perfect, but fighting, contending for the truth in our own lives and walking out Walking out that grace in a way that shows we are, we are 
We're, we're fleeing that sin of which we once were and now walking in the new man, Christ. And, and what's going to protect us from that? What's going to protect this church from relying on dreams, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, blaspheming the glorious ones? From, from our homes, from our, from our own hearts, becoming apostate, falling away, from, from espousing the wrong doctrine. And I would say that that protection comes when we contend for the value. We contend, we, see, we look to see the value of the gospel as God values the gospel. When we submit to the lordship of Christ and as, as all of creation submits to Christ, when we will do that, then, then we're under his authority. We're under his protection. When we do that within this body, this, this family, this, believe, these, these, this group of believers together, then we can encourage one another and exhort one another and say, no, brother, no, sister. There's a, you're letting in. You're, you're playing with sin here. Don't do that. Look, for, look to see what Christ has done. Follow his example. When those things happen, then, then we are protected in many ways from this. Not perfectly, no. Sin can get in. But Christ, as, as, we've, as we saw in verse 1 of this, of Jude, he will be kept in, will be kept for Jesus Christ. So maybe as we continue to study this passage and learn more of these characteristics and what to look for and what not to look for, maybe we always realize that we're looking for those things so we can contend against those things in order that the world might see the beautiful Savior that he is. Let's pray. Lord, this is, a, this is a difficult passage. And I simply ask, Father, that your word in its power and truth might infiltrate our hearts and give us through the Holy Spirit a better understanding of these things. But Father, may we, may we not be selfish and prideful and aloof from studying what seems to be not as applicable in our own personal lives. And yet, Father, it's so crucial, so crucial that as we desire to contend for the true faith as once delivered us to us for all ages, that as we desire to contend for that, we must know what we're contending against. So that we can, in, in the love of Christ, contend well and by your grace portray the glorious picture of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Father, we thank you for saving us, dead in our trespasses and sins, enemies. Your enemies, yet you loved us. You called us. You sustain us and you keep us. We're, we're grateful, Father. We thank you. Father, may we, as, as sons and daughters of the King, as soldiers of Christ, arise, Father, and put our armor on.
Stand in the grace that has been given to us. Battle well. Not flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers of the air. Not, not us battling in our own flesh, but in the power of the Spirit, in the power of God, through the true word of Scripture, through the authority that we see that you have, that you have, Father, you alone have, that we would, we would battle for the truth. That helmet of salvation, that breastplate of righteousness. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us for this week. Father, it's, it's a difficult task to contend. It's laborious. It's exhausting. It's easy to give in to that sin that so easily besets us. And yet, Father, may we look to you as our example who contended for us that we might be able to contend as you did. And in that looking, see the grace and the strength and the ability to continue to contend for the truth. And may it, Father, not be just in these pews. May it be between our ears in our own personal hearts because what's in this church is simply that which is being acted out on a day-by-day, private basis. Help us to be faithful, Father. And we trust in our grateful Lord that you will, you will provide that which we need. You will give us all that we need for life and godliness as you promised. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen.